Clipping Chains podcast from ClippingChains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I got to say, I might have eaten one egg too many. Have you ever been there? You ever eaten maybe one too many eggs for you egg lovers out there? It leaves you with a strange, odd sense of regret. Same with one too many handfuls of peanuts. You guys have been there, right? Is that just me? It might just be me. (laughs) Oh boy. Today on episode 27, we are taking a deeper dive on real estate for all you house people, houses and apartments and all that stuff. Real estate investing with climbers TN and Brandon Rooney of, wait for it, 512 Real Estate. Yeah, that's right. 512. Okay. (laughs) This couple shares a very intriguing history spanning from college athletics to those corporate world wake-up calls I think a lot of you will find familiar, and the latter of which inspired them to uproot their lives in America and teach and travel throughout Asia through a lot of their 20s. Eventually, looking to rekindle the useful days of travel and freedom from the time in Asia, Tian and Brandon turned to real estate investment as a way to fast-track their path to financial independence. They even moved into a van full-time to further optimize their financial journey. So, not something unusual to climbers, of course, but adding on to that, the idea of investing on the side, right? So, where we begin this discussion is actually following their travels in Asia. We, we spoke for quite a while about their, their days of traveling and everything, and, and just to keep this kind of to the meat and potatoes, I did trim it up, and I'm, I'm sorry, but we'll just kind of start at that point. And at this point in the story, Brandon and Tian have returned to the U.S., and they're deciding actually to move in with family members. They just said, hey, we were broke. And we really wanted to first focus on paying down Brandon's $30,000 in student loans. And so that's where this story begins. Okay, first, before we get going, I want to give a digital bear hug to a couple new anonymous contributors through Buy Me a Coffee, the platform I use to cover the costs of running this blog and podcast and everything else. If you are interested in supporting and the perks of a recurring membership, follow the link for Buy Me a Coffee in your show notes or on the website at clippingchains.com. And of course, you can go directly to buymeacoffee.com slash clippingchains. Also, this was kind of unique. Jackie, who you may remember from episode 15 as Craig Fallhaber's superwoman of a girlfriend, I gotta say, man, she sent me a t-shirt. A t-shirt, guys. And they're pretty cool, man. You gotta check these out. I believe she's still taking orders, so find Jackie on Instagram at idigdirt. I-D-I-G-D-I-R-T to get yours. I believe she's still selling these. Anyway. All right, let's get into this week's fantastic interview with Tien and Brandon of 512 Real Estate. Right. Yeah, so we basically, we did teach English. Um, so we had worked, we lived in Seattle at the time or just before that. And... I was working like 65 hours a week and then Brandon was working a corporate job as well. And I think that we had, we're not Seattle natives, so we were definitely getting down with the weather a bit. And so we were like, we are tired of this corporate thing. We should try something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we were just looking around, happened to find a program that would teach you, uh, like you'd, you'd go over there, you took a class, they arranged kind of some of the transportation and then 
after that, they would help you find placements. Now, we realized later, like, you don't need to go through all of that. You could basically just show up in Thailand and say, I have any kind of degree. And they're always looking for English speaking teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was just the, the route that we went. And so we left our jobs. Like, as soon as we got accepted, we left our jobs and went over there. And then we taught for six months and then climbed a bunch and then traveled around Southeast Asia for two months after that. Hmm. Oh, fantastic. And so where, yeah, you guys went, I mean, it looks like Indonesia, Vietnam. What else am I missing? You guys were kind of popped around Southeast Asia quite a bit there. Yeah. So we went Bali, Philippines, Tokyo. Hmm. And wow. I think that covers it. Now, and I'll link to, you know, you guys did an episode with Bigger Bigger Pockets, known for the real estate investing side of things. And it's a great episode, and I'll put it in the show notes here for folks to discover. But you talk about coming out of school in college with debt. And so where were you on that kind of debt pay down strategy or, or lack thereof when you guys decided to move to Asia? Did you already kind of figure that out? Or were you just like, oh, no, we'll deal with this later. We just don't want to do this corporate grind. Kind of where were you at that point? So all the debt was mine. So Tian actually okay. she, she was a lot better. I, that's r- that's I right. That's right. She was my best financial decision, and she always says <laughs> that was her worst financial decision. <laughs> that's right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I carried all the debt, uh, and so like I had an old Bronco too that I had in college that couldn't make it from Iowa to Washington. That had a junk, unfortunately. Now it's probably worth mm-hmm. a lot of money, but the. Uh, I had to buy a new car when I got out there and I had about $30,000 in student debt, which for being out of state student wasn't terrible, but no, 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 no. having a new career and it felt like a lot at the time. Yeah. And we were really fortunate that we were, we actually both uh, were college athletes. So we mm-hmm. were able to get yep. scholarships through that. And then um, we both had academic scholarships as well. So our debt would have been a lot more normally but uh, we were really fortunate in that respect and tan it looks like you were a diver swimmer i was yeah i was on yeah. the swimming and diving team as a diver mm-hmm. okay and brandon what, what did you do in school swimming. okay i was a track and cross country Mo- great mostly focused on track but in order to fulfill my my uh, scholarship i had to run cross country too <laughs> okay <laughs> gruel it out a little bit yeah so uh, you guys talked about, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm make sure I'm not getting my stories mixed up. Um, you guys actually decided, did you go move in with parents to work on the debt situation or am I getting you guys mixed up? Uh, sort of. So when we, we went to Asia and we had the student loans and we were still just paying in the car loan and we were just paying whatever the, our monthly payment was. Um, and it wasn't until we got back from Asia. And the reason we came back with, from Asia is because we basically were broke. Like, okay, we can't travel <laughs> okay. anymore because we have no money and we're not really, I mean, we, you make money as a English teacher, but not sure. a ton. Um, right. So we had to come back and then we moved in with Brandon's sister, actually. That's and right. so we That's were right. staying with family. We rented a room from her. And then, uh, yeah, we we just ate a lot of ramen and easy mac and um brandon worked he was working a job and then also studying to get his um he was going to a fire academy and then i was working a job and then also working nights and weekends as like a tax preparer so we're both working two jobs and then just saving as much as we could and that's when when we really started to get aggressive and paying down our debt 
Did it feel like a sacrifice to do that? I say definitely. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to let Brandon respond yeah, to that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I would say yeah. more than the um, money side of it, it was just the time I would say that was a sacrifice because we spent a lot of time working and sacrificing okay. trips to do that and like paying down the debt that was way lighter than giving up all that time. Yeah, and we lived apart too. So he he had to actually um, go – he went and lived with a, another sister. Um, he has a lot of sisters. So he went and lived with another sister and did his fire academy, and then I was living with his other sister and then working the two jobs in that town. Fire academy so it was definitely for being a sacrifice. Fireman, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's usually gotcha. through a junior college or something like that. They'll It's, it's usually a one-semester – deal where you go and you get your firefighter one um certificate but you have to actually in order to complete it you have to work as a reserve or or as a volunteer fireman Mm -hmm. or as a professional paid fireman so it's like the first step to getting that cert well i I don't want to belabor this or poke or prod so was this really a a debt pay down strategy or was it like i'm just broke and that's the only option i've got (laughs) or a little bit of both Uh yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, we were we were coming back from Asia and neither of us had jobs. So the initial right. like move in with family was gotcha. like, okay, what can we afford? We can't afford our own place. So we'll just, um, you know, see if anyone wants to take us in. <laughs> and then uh, after that, like we could have left earlier, you know, we could have moved out earlier and got our own place, but we were paying down our debt so aggressively that we just calculated it out. Like if we can stay for another six months, um, then we could, you know, get everything paid down. So we were able to pay off all of his student loans, car loans and be debt free. And it was like around six months, I think once, Hmm. once we started working full time. No, I I appreciate that. I mean, I think, I think it, it, it seems like such a sacrifice. That's why I asked if it was, you know, there's so much taboo, especially in the U S around moving back in with your parents. I mean, in some cultures it's totally normal, but in the U S it's certainly not. But it is such a great strategy for those early years of trying to pay down debt. And you guys, at least at some degree, decided you wanted to stay on a little longer to work on that, which puts you in a much greater position later on, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Did. And we tried to make sure that it was like a win-win situation, too, for for his family so that they could, um, you know, like that we, we wanted to pay them and, and rent from them. And we, we even looked around at like moving to like renting a room somewhere else so that they could have more space. And it was about the same price. Um, Mm. So we just stayed where we were. So after that, we actually, we both got full-time jobs in San Diego and we, uh, we worked together actually, which was pretty cool. We moved down to San Diego and rented. We, we were renting and, and working full-time for probably uh, what was that like three years, Tian? Something we were working together, and that was kind of where it was we like went. Four years, we, yeah, four years oh. maybe. And we basically went from all right, now we have no debt. Like, how do we actually get back to that freedom that we had in Thailand? And that was when mm-hmm. we started brainstorming in different ways to make your passive income, so to speak, or something that can supplement and get us to early retirement. And that that kind of that took a while and we experimented a lot with a lot of different ideas and Tian can talk a little more about that. Cause she, she tried some side businesses and we tried stock market 
before getting into real estate? Yeah. So the when we first heard the term passive income, we were like so interested in that. And so we started Googling mm-hmm. it and trying to figure out like, how do we have passive income? That sounds amazing. And so we, one of the things was like having an Etsy shop. And so that was one of the things that we started right. doing. I really like photography. And so I would do a ton of photography when we would travel because we love traveling. Um, you know, and we live here, so there's a lot of surfers. So I take like a lot of surf photography and stuff like that. And I thought, well, maybe if I can create like an online shop, then people can just be buying prints and that's just passive. I don't have to do anything. And I had like a white label printing company and stuff like that set up. Turns out that's not very lucrative, Um, (laughs) but (laughs) I thought it was a good idea at the time. So spent like a, I don't know, probably a year, like I was going to trade shows and things like that. And it's like, this is not worth the time or the money. So that's when we started um, doing, I feel like we did stocks around then is when we first started getting into it. Like, okay, we're going to buy, um, we weren't day trading or anything like that at the time, but we were just buying like companies we liked like Amazon and Apple and stuff like Mm. that. Um, and then we just kind of held on to them, but then we also at the same time were like saving up as we were saving up a lot of money because our goal has always been to be able to live on like one person's income or less. And then that's when we found real estate. So how old are you guys in this time frame? Is this like mid twenties, late twenties? I mean, yeah, this this is sort of like our late twenties, like, um, 27, 28 ish. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So you, you kind of dabble. We talked about this offline and you talked about it on bigger pockets as well, but you were kind of in the, uh, we could call it active, right? Active stock picking. Like you said, not day trading per se. You weren't like, you know, running all, all day long, but you were trying to kind of sort out the best companies from not good companies and, and, and maybe beat the market in some sort of way like that. I mean, I think that was definitely the goal, but we didn't <laughs> do enough research to really, I guess just like, well, we have this extra money just sitting in a bank. It's better to like put it in something we thought could grow and without uh-huh. having to really learn it. So I was like, well, like the Amazons, those aren't going anywhere sort of thing. It was more of that than the, like, all right, let's learn about it, which is probably why we didn't stay in the stock. We didn't really put any effort into learning about the stock market. Yeah. And I would say those like bigger companies, obviously like Amazon has done really well and Apple's done really well. But um, when we, I guess, fast forward a little bit, when COVID hit in March of 2020, we obviously all had a lot more downtime. And so our um, a lot of our family just kind of got on a group thread and was like talking stocks every day. So we were all trying <laughs> to like you know, collectively beat the market, I guess, so to speak, or, or guess. And we were, we were getting into all these weird stocks and it basically came down to like, we were spending so many hours on our phones, like tracking stocks. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, we might make like 10 bucks or we might lose 50. You have no idea. So (laughs) it was just like so stressful. And so we did that for probably like six months. And then that's when we realized like stock trading is not, not for us. (laughs) Your Zoom calls were very different than mine. <laughs> okay. Well, but you guys had already gotten into real estate by by the COVID lockdowns, right? I mean, this was not new to you in 2020, correct? Correct. Yeah. So we had done our first flip house flip in 2017. Mm-hmm. And then by the time COVID had hit, we actually had, we had two duplexes at the time and then 
right um, in April of 2020 is when we bought our third duplex. So we had gotten into real estate investing. And then that was another thing too. Like we know how to evaluate properties. It's for us, it's like a lot more black and white as to should we buy this house or should we not? Whereas real estate for us, I mean, sorry, stock investing for us was like, um, I think this company is is good. I don't know. It has some good news about it, but we just didn't know how to really evaluate companies. Why did you come to this conclusion that you know how to evaluate houses? Well, we spent a lot of time reading books, actually listening to podcasts, uh, evaluating houses. We spent a lot of time actually on the front end of learning how to evaluate before we even pulled the trigger. And part of we probably could have pulled the trigger a lot earlier and we just didn't really know, all right, what's the stock market or what's the housing market going to do? It seems like everything's high. And this was back in 2018. We're like, oh man, everything's high. Um, (laughs) And then after we had purchased our first uh, flip, everything went really well. And then it was just super time consuming. So we went into the rental side and after we purchased our duplexes, it was one of those things we're like, all right, now we've done it. We evaluated it. We spent a year basically with rehabs and getting tenants in, dealing with different issues, having a lot better understanding of actually doing it is when we started to feel really comfortable and start making a lot more offers and then using our capital to be more aggressive in the real estate side. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me because a lot of people have asked me now over the three or so years I've been running this platform, like, why aren't you into real estate or why don't you talk about real estate more often? And I'm like, I don't know enough about it. I mean, I have listened to some podcasts. I've read some books as well. And I'm inherently lazy <laughs> when it comes <laughs> to these sort of things. And I just, it real estate felt like a lot of work and I could buy an index fund. It was really easy. I could just click this button and I under, I felt like I understood that. Now, why did you guys land on the side of real estate, which I think you both would be willing to admit is definitely not passive, right? I mean, it can be eventually, but in the early days, it's anything but. So why did you guys decide that this was the path for you? Yeah, so I definitely agree that real estate is not passive. And I don't think it necessarily ever will be 100% passive Uh for us or really for most people. Um, But one of the reasons that we wanted to move forward with real estate is – just the time and and how quickly we felt like we could achieve financial freedom through real estate versus uh, just putting our money into index funds. And we're kind of mm-hmm. the opposite of viewers. Like we just right. haven't studied index funds um, right. or, you know, stock investing or anything like that, but we have heavily studied real estate. So we've, like he said, like Brandon said, like we've read tons of books about it. Like we do listen to bigger pockets uh, pretty regularly and, we use like a, we have a specific financial calculator, which they're available everywhere, you know, um, but that you can evaluate properties. And so I, and Brandon's our main property evaluator. So he's good mm. with all the numbers, um, but he's probably evaluated, you know, over 60 properties just this year. So he's, wow. he's good at like figuring out um, and the calculators do a lot of work too, but um, just figuring out like, okay, we have to account for this we, we usually do like 5% for maintenance, 5% for future major repairs, something like a mm-hmm. roof or, you know, if we have to fully renovate or water heater or something like that. And then we account a certain percent for vacancy too. So when we're running numbers on a property, 
we're not just doing what's rent, what's mortgage and taxes. Like we're accounting for all those things that are typically feared in real estate, like not being able to find a tenant or having um, an appliance go out or something like that. We try to calculate that in so that we know if the property is worth it with those Hmm. expenses. You're baking in a risk factor basically. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a calculator you could share with me for like a show notes, either a link or is it a spreadsheet or what do you use? So we have a, Bigger Pockets is probably the easiest way to do it. They actually okay. have, uh, if you go on their website, I think they, you can do like five calculations for free every month. Um, okay. So it's like a monthly count. You just create a free account and you can do it. Um, and then there's a bunch of different paid versions from all sorts of people. And if on Bigger Pockets, for example, if you join as a, I think they call it a pro member, you can get unlimited calculations. Uh, so and all that's really doing is it's plugging numbers into a spreadsheet and it's going to calculate your purchase price, your down payment, your um, APR, and then all your repairs, maintenance, vacancies. And then you would you can bake in what you think the appreciation is going to be, what you think rent growth will be and stuff like that. And it'll kick out a report that gives you your ROI and what you would expect over like one year, five year, 10 years. Hmm. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll dig that up. I may have you guys help me find it, but I'll, I'll yeah. get a link for you guys who are listening yeah, later. It'll be in your show it. notes. Yeah. Perfect. Wow. So, okay. There's a lot. So if for someone's coming into this for the first time, you're like, what is all this? So, you know, I think the idea here and let's maybe start the simplest solution is basically to rent out. And we, I had a previous guest on, I, I'm failing to remember the episode right now, but I'll have it in the show notes. It was with Eric Jensen. And he talked about the simplest solution I know of in real estate, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you own a property and you just rent out some rooms to friends or strangers and you're just having people paying your mortgage. That's kind of like the old quote unquote house act, correct? And is there a simpler solution than that? That is, that's correct. And I would say as far as a risk um, side of things, it's probably the safest way as well mm-hmm. because you're, you're there physically for stuff to go wrong or have issues with a tenant. And then also right. being living in the house, it, it also protects you to like be able to um, control your renters almost even better. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause you're there. I mean, you, yeah. <laughs> you can only yeah. go so crazy when your landlord's like in the next room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you guys chose, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Your first approach was the whole fix and flip approach, correct? It was, yeah. And the reason we decided to go that route is, um, so actually my grandparents got into flipping after they retired mm-hmm. and it was just something that my grandma really likes it. And so they had done that and we saw how lucrative it was. And so we we're like, oh, we should, we should try that. Like we have these funds. Um, we live in Southern California. So, and the housing market's so expensive, you know, it's 2018. Mm-hmm. And, um, we're like, we never, we'll, we're just gonna wait for the market to drop. So in the meantime, we'll just put our funds into back in the Midwest where I'm from. And so we did like a long distance investment and we went back, um, we ended up buying a house and then we went back to do the work. And then, so that's, I guess, kind of how we got into flipping is because we saw other people doing it. Um, we went back, we did, did the work. It took us six weeks, uh, but we were working full time at the time. So we were working like 16 hour days 
mm-hmm. on the house and our full-time jobs. <laughs> um, and it took six weeks. And by the end of it, we were like so burnt out. And we had just paid for six months of rent in San Diego and haven't stepped foot in our oh, apartment. Wow. And we were like, this is just not for us. And we wanted passive income and like recurring income. So though it was a positive experience from a financial side, we we did, we only got that money once. Whereas renting, obviously you're getting monthly income. Rents right. ideally over time will appreciate. Ideally your house will also appreciate. And in the meantime, you're getting your mortgage paid down. The whole fix and flip concept is just to buy a place in need of repair, in need of renovation. Do that renovation and then capitalize on the, the I guess, the, the appreciation of both. Yeah, you basically have done these renovations. So you're going to get that back and more when you resell mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh yeah, I'll call it like forced appreciation. So exactly. it was yeah. It was this value, but you forced the value up by renovating it. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks and for that. example, like the house that we bought, it only had one owner. Um, the previous tenant was like ninety something years old, or not tenant, owner was ninety something years old. He was going to live with family. So the house, as you can guess, like hadn't been updated in ninety years. So it wasn't that it was like <laughs> falling down or anything like that, but it just needed like a full remodel. Gotcha. Okay. So that kind of (laughs) sucked. Yeah. I mean, we learned a ton, like for, Uh, um, from an investor standpoint, it was nice because we learned like how much does it cost to put new floors in a house? Like how much does Mm. paint cost for a whole house, you know? So for that, from that perspective, we learned a bunch, but we were working our butts off. And, um, when we got done, we were like, we only get paid once <laughs> and now <laughs> we have to do it again <laughs> if, if we want to make money again. Hmm. Okay. So what was next? Yeah. So after that is when we kind of decided to go to the buy and hold strategy mm-hmm. and do the rental side, which we, because we had such good luck in Indiana, we decided to stay in Indiana for that side. Um, and go to the Midwest again. And that one, we, we put on, I don't know, we probably put offers for a good six months before we ever got anything accepted. Uh, it's a little trickier. Uh, there's a couple of different methods you can go about it. Uh, as far as you could do like we just did the fix and flip option, but you hold it and they call it the burr where you buy rehab rent, refinance, <laughs> okay. repeat. Um, gotcha. and that, that's the ideal scenario. Cause you're basically leveraging your cash to go farther. Um, and that was our, okay. kind of our goal, the long term, but we ended up buying two duplexes on, uh, on basically a large estate sale for a guy that got basically in tax issues and he was trying to sell off about 20 duplexes. And so it was a, a bigger deal that we ended up just trying to get in on. And we only bought two of them, but that was kind of the next step. So what metrics are you looking for? I mean, you're not just buying any old house, right? I mean, I know we could talk a whole podcast around the metrics of real estate investing and kind of what you're looking for, but can you give me a high level of how you're weeding through these properties and what's a good fit for you guys? Yeah. So as far as the, um, the best, the best place to start is kind of location. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. one of those things where you hear location 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 but sure. for us it wasn't necessarily that we we're like looking for the hottest market we we're looking for a place where you have a good tenant base that 
you have potential growth in population, potential growth in mm-hmm. uh, salaries and stuff like that. <clears throat> and then you also were looking for just crime rates, um, how, what's the medium income and stuff like that. So that's kind of where we started. And then after that, we started to look for houses that you've probably heard about the 1% rule at the time we were looking at like the 1% right. rule. That would be like a quick, like, all right, that house is going to go for a hundred thousand dollars. It gets a thousand dollars in rent. And then at that point you could throw it into your calculator and start working on it. So you're not necessarily doing every single property and the 1% rule isn't necessarily an end all be all. It's just something that you can quickly look at a property and be like, is it even worth looking at? Can we pause on that for a second? I just want to clarify for the folks who are hearing this for the first time. I mean, if you're in the real estate world, you've heard this a lot, but the 1% rule, maybe break it down. So the idea is you're all in initial investment. Let's just say you need a property and it needs renovation. It's going to cost you $200,000, correct? Yes. You need to collect rents of at least $2,000 a month. Is that my understanding? Is that correct? So that's the idea of the, that is if you are able to collect rent of 2000 on a $200,000 property, mm-hmm. you could cash flow. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to actually produce cash above and beyond your mortgage, your utilities, taxes, and everything. Right. And so that's kind of the, that's where it comes in. It's not necessarily like, oh, it has to meet this. It's, right. it's going to likely cash flow. That's really all it means. Okay. Thank you. So you're kind of looking for properties, you know, you know, kind of roughly what this area could collect in rent. Let's just say this, these areas are kind of typical. These houses can collect $1,500 a month. You're kind of looking for something roughly worth $150,000, or at least that's what you'll put into it, even if it needs renovations, correct? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that definitely was at the time. So for Mm -hmm. now, like now we'd, the 1% (laughs) rule isn't necessarily, it's still something like a quick way to look at something. But now after doing like calculations and stuff, I can know like, all right, a two bedroom, one bath at this price is going to work in this neighborhood. And then I'll do the calculations and make sure double check everything. So it's one of those things where just doing the repetitive analysis of different neighborhoods, you can quickly identify what houses make sense and what houses aren't even worth even doing any calculations. Well, yeah. And I wanted to ask you guys about this. So maybe we're getting a little off track, but maybe it's a good time to ask because, you know, five, maybe six years ago, I was hearing 1% rule left and right. Like that was the, everyone admitted it wasn't the only criteria, but it was a really good one. And now, you know, with real estate prices jumping 20, 30, even 40% where I live right now, year over year, which is insane. Rents haven't kept up with that kind of increase. So where I mean, is there a place where the one percent rule even works anymore, and does it matter? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely places where it does work and it does exist. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things is you kind of have to figure out your strategy as far as as a real estate investor. Like for us, our strategy is to basically get enough cash flow to retire early, um, mm-hmm. whereas somebody else could be just to maximize their dollar and see the most money possible. Um, so for, for example, like where you live, the 1% rule isn't necessarily working, but you still will find people that are buying properties based on appreciation. So mm-hmm. usually where a 1% rule is 
happening. You're not seeing houses go up by 20% year over year. They might only be going up 5% right now. Um, Which is more normal for a normal housing market. Yeah. 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 It's definitely a lot more normal. The people that are investing in those hot markets, they're adopting different strategies like short term rentals, or they're basically doing the fix and flip on nicer homes even. So like something that doesn't need a full renovation, they're just buying it, putting some paint on it, and then reselling it. Um, Which is admittedly a bit speculative, right? I mean, I think we'd agree on that. You're you're hoping that there's going to be appreciation, but it's not guaranteed. Yeah, exactly. Like the stock market, the housing market over time does go up. So if you're able to hold theoretically for 10 years, your chances of it going up are pretty good. Um, So... Yeah. From that perspective, it's a little less speculative. But like, yeah, if you're like buying it and hoping to sell it next year for a 20% gain, that's definitely very speculative. Yeah. Okay, glad we agree. <laughs> <laughs> People like us who are more looking for cash flow, who aren't buying in those like high appreciation areas too, I w- are not necessarily looking to sell in even less than five years, I would mm-hmm. say. Like like all the properties that we hold, unless something were to happen, there's a better deal that comes up and we need cash or something like that. Um, we plan to hold our properties, I don't want to say forever, but for a really long time. So sure. even if there is a dip in the housing market, we don't necessarily care because right. we're not selling. You're more interested in those rents and those monthly cash flows. Yeah. Exactly. Perfect. So that's pretty much been your model ever since. Yeah. And then- and- it's definitely been, we've gone through phases of like more aggressive um, real estate to kind of slowing down. Cause when I got hired, I ended up getting hired as a fireman and that kind of slowed my progress as far as helping out with the real estate business for probably a good year. Um, just because of when you're, when you're getting first hired by a fire department, you're basically expected to like study for a year straight and be on top of your game and mm-hmm. and uh i ended up probably being a little less hands-on the business and that slowed us down a little bit uh, but also when you're on your uh they call it probation your first year as a firefighter in the department and you don't really want to get hurt because they could fire you if you like <laughs> okay. aren't able to complete your year of probation um so i ended up work we bought a van and that was kind of my real estate play for that year. I ended up just oh, building out a van. Perfect segue. <laughs> I was like, how are we going to get this in here? Yeah. So that's <laughs> a big part of your story. And that's how you guys kind of ended up on the bigger pockets podcast because you had this kind of novel approach, which is not so novel in the climbing world. Yeah. Um, but maybe it is in the real estate investing world is that you guys moved into a van for what? About 18 months. Correct. Correct. Yep. Which kind of which kind of freed you up to have more options with the real estate and save some money, ideally. So yeah, let's maybe talk through that process a little bit. Yeah. So um, at first, we when we were living in San Diego and we were working down here, we lived about a block away from our work. So we had two cars and just thought it was ridiculous. So we ended up getting rid of a car, barely used our other car because we just walked or biked like pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so then, um, when he got hired on as a firefighter, we obviously were going to need two cars. So we started looking at other cars. Brandon had suggested a van 
And I was like, why would we want a van? Like I had no no, like thought process as to why we would want that. And then we started seeing more vans and um, like seeing how cool they are and kind of got onto that train. So then we're like, okay, for our second car, let's just, let's just get a van. So then um, as part of his probation too, you can't really travel that much because if they call you and they say, Mm -hmm. oh, we need you to come into the, uh, into the station, like tomorrow and as if you're on probation, you can't be like, oh, I'm out of town. I'm sorry. You, you have to be there. So we really didn't travel. So um, we used that year to really just build out our van. And then our goal was if we, so the amount of money that we spent on it, if we could live in it, well, the goal was six months originally. And it wasn't necessarily like a, a money play as much as it was like, we we could travel a bunch and we could have this really cool experience and our, our apartment lease is coming up and we didn't want to renew. So it kind of started that way. And then once we got into it, we were like, Hey, we could, I think we could go longer than this. And then we calculated out as to how long we would need to be in it to actually like make the entire van quote unquote free for us. Oh, um, perfect. This is the money that we go. saved. Yeah. Perfect. Um, give me the details real quick. What kind of van you got? What'd you put, what'd you put in it? How much, what, what did, to, to the extent you feel comfortable, I don't want you to, in, you know, sure, know. Sure. tell yeah. me what you want. I'll, but. Let, I'll <laughs> let Brandon do the numbers, but we okay. have, um, a, a Ford transit that okay. we named Carlton. Carl- <laughs> Brandon, can get in, Brandon can get in the numbers. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we, uh, it's a Ford transit 350, uh, extended high top. So it's biggest van you can possibly get. Um, (laughs) which wasn't our initial plan no no so we we looked for a while just shopping around looking around just trying to we were looking at only used we weren't trying to buy something new but we were Mm -hmm. kind of on the fence between oh should we just spend the extra money to get the sprinter Mm -hmm. or should we go with the transit and so we test drove both of them and they they both drove well enough and we we're like ah, oh, i can't really tell enough difference so we might as well if i'm going to be building it out i mean i'm i feel like i'm handy but i'd rather mess up on a cheaper vehicle than a more expensive vehicle <laughs> nice so, european <laughs> so it ended up being great like i had so much time that it ended up being perfect but we uh we we found a van just on a, on one of the dealer's lots that had originally been converted by somebody else but they had got it repoed. And so they had stripped like all the electrical, <laughs> all the wiring, like all it had was like these bunk beds and like a bench. And it was, it was really terrible design, but I, it, they obviously had kids. So it wasn't a terrible design for them oh, okay. necessarily. <laughs> so we, we like told the dealer like, yeah, I mean this, this is going to require more work. We want one that's empty. And they're like, yeah, I totally understand. And they wanted, I want to say they, they originally wanted like 36,000 for it. And we're like, okay, well, I mean, we can buy one that's empty for basically like $2,000 more. We're like, yeah, we'll just, uh-huh. we'll just go keep, keep looking around. And then like a month later, we like drive by the dealership, the van's still on the lot. We're like, yeah, we should just go in there and talk to them. <laughs> and at this point, Perfect. I think they had it on their lot for like two months and they're like, all right, we'll give it to you for $28,000. Like, all right, deal. <laughs> wow. So, Get this thing out of here. All right. Yeah. So they couldn't sell it to save their lives just because it, it it was like such a terrible, it wasn't like it was a desirable finish for anybody. It was like, just looked terrible on the inside. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. And, That's quite the savings. 
yeah so it worked out i mean after tax and everything i think we ended sure. up, it was like close to thirty two hundred dollars or so or thirty two thousand dollars and then uh yeah so i ended up doing all the build myself which was great that a whole had a whole year because it took me the whole year to build it um <laughs> and we lived in like a little apartment and so basically just borrowed tools and got like this tiny little garage where i kept everything and we spent the whole year doing we got solar panels we did uh, like a high bed so that we have storage underneath for surfboards mm-hmm. and everything um like did all the electrical all the woodwork in it and and we have we have a toilet no shower but uh built it just to live in because originally it was going to be just like a weekend warrior and then tan really wanted to live in it so we built it so it was like livable like stealth camping like you can't really tell unless like you spot the solar panels at a or like the vent which most people don't really realize that's a dead giveaway but uh it's a giveaway to me van, that's what i'm always looking for yeah like <laughs> unless unless yeah, you're like to, a van lifer you don't bags. realize it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah so we uh we finished it up and it would put about ninety five hundred dollars in just okay. wood and electrical and solar and <laughs> yeah, yeah, well it, no thank you that that's that's really transparent so i guess how are you running the numbers because that's obviously a huge upfront expense and so i think there's a lot of there's this obvious misconception i think when we're just like on instagram or something like oh i should just move into a van it'd be so cheap but you guys obviously had to put a lot of money up front and time and so yeah. how are you running the numbers on this will be cheaper than rent and at, what, you, it looks like you did some payoff calculations or something like this i mean i i love it i love it yeah so we we uh i mean originally when we started looking at vans and we're like oh we want a camper like we looked at completed campers and like your custom builds you get like a pro master for like 110 up you get a transit kind of the same Mm -hmm. price you get like the sprinter for like 180 plus you're like oh this is insane and those are like the custom builds and like you go to a lot it's like over a hundred thousand like well maybe we're maybe we're not gonna do it and that was when we kind of went to the build side Um, and on the build side, I really, we were just looking for like, all right, let's get a good entry point. And that was kind of obviously how we found the original van. And then after that, we kind of, we were just like, never built a van. So we just guessed 10,000 on the build, just on like, all right, how much solar panels cost? How much does this cost? Really rough. And then luckily that's about (laughs) the budget we hit anyway. Uh, and since we had to buy a car anyway, like, well, we're going to spend hmm. 20000 on, like, True. a reliable car. True. Anyway, so that was like, all right, well, if we're going to spend 20000 what's another 10000 to get, like, a van we can convert? And then, then we basically, after that, we're like, all right, rent in Southern California or is pretty expensive. So we, we were, like, going to cost about 2000 just for TNI in rent and utilities and cable and everything. And so that was like, all right. So after that, it's like a year and a half or just over a year and a half, we would have basically paid for the whole van. And that was how we did the calculations on. Interesting. We we stayed for a year and a half. Had we paid rent for that time, it would be the exact same. So in theory, we are all our rent paid for our van. Hmm. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of different knobs depending on the kind of van or the kind of build and where you live and your rent. 
I, I did a post, I'll put it in the show notes, it's called like, uh, I think it's called the Economics of Van Life, where I looked into this a couple years ago, three years ago, actually, and it ended up being a popular post. But it looks at that trade-off of, okay, yeah, how long do you really got to live in this thing to make it worth it? And so you guys think you actually did, in, in a sense, pay it off by living in it for 18 months? Yeah, Yeah, I think it I ended mean, up, we, we moved out of it like three months early or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Close yeah. enough. Yeah. So pretty much. So what was the idea in doing it? Was it just the experience or was it a financial move? I think it kind of started as an, as the experience, um, since we were moving anyways, like, Hey, we have this van, we're planning to move. Like, let's just try it and see how, see how awesome it is. And then we loved it. And we were like in the year and a half, we were on the road traveling for six months for like big trips. Like we'd go Mm -hmm. for two to three weeks here, here or there. Um, took it all the way to the Northwest and East coast. And like, we loved it. Um, and the reason, I mean, after a year and a half, it does get a little tiring, but then we are also, we're just seeing the the housing market go up and up. And like after COVID we were like, I guess we thought that was going to crash the market, but I guess not. So maybe mm-hmm. we should buy our own house. Yeah, <laughs> and the whole shortage of housing kind of reared its right. head. It's like, Oh, all right. So maybe it's not. And you were able to continue work. Tian, you were working remotely, correct? And Brandon, you just lived and then just took another car to work and just came back to the van, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it yeah. took some coordination uh, sure. for sure. We would like park the car somewhere and then Stealth. we'd, yeah. Yeah. yeah we'd <laughs> park the car and then like leave it and then like park close to it when we slept. And then I would mm-hmm. literally just get out of the van and <laughs> go to the car and leave. I have to be at work pretty early. So it was always like, yeah, like, 5 a.m. So really no one, I don't, I don't, I mean, maybe a handful of times somebody saw me get up and get out of the van and go to the car. <laughs> <laughs> it's an increasingly common situation. I've heard several <laughs> people talk through this. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. And so you guys were just able to travel with your vacation time, I take it, and maybe 10, you were working while you guys were traveling. How'd you handle that for the longer trips? Yeah. So I actually work from home already and I have, um, for about five years now. So it, mm-hmm. it worked out really great for me because Brandon likes to drive anyways. So any on our road trips, he pretty much drives. And then I work from the passenger seat. Um, we also like, we built it so that we could have a full like table slash desk in the back. So we, I spent most of my days at the beach when we lived in it. Um, we just had a beach pass. So I was able to go there every day for free. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be there from like 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. I'd work, <laughs> I'd work out, I'd, you know, hang out at the beach, do whatever. Yeah, not so bad. Um, but I was able to basically not take days off unless we were just out doing something. So if we, like when we did our East Coast trip, like I'd take days out, days off when we went to climb. But if we were just like, oh, we're going to do a hike out lunch or something like that, like I was able to work half days or full days. And for folks that are curious, you you were kind of in the tech world. What, what were you doing for work at the time? Yeah, or, or I'm, still a, I'm an account yeah. manager for like an online marketing website. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So, so I'm so not techie, but. Yeah, okay. <laughs> work Loosely. with techie people. Loosely, yeah. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. All right. I've gotten us derailed from the uh, real estate, but no, I'm glad. I wanted to talk through the van thing. And so, but you guys did use this as a tool to kind of help I don't know, fast track if that's the right word or enhance your real estate investing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I Cause say, we were able to save. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just, I was going to say the exact name as you just basically that during that, whatever, 18 months, we, we saved for a down payment on a house is really what we did. Mm-hmm. 
And you were going for, I believe you said a conventional loan, like 20% down. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So unfortunately, um, just with the price of housing here, um, an FHA or a first time, first time home buyers loan wasn't really an option for us because the Mm. debt would just be crazy. Um, for people who are looking to get into it and house hacking and things like that, typically most people start with a first time home buyers loan because you only have to put as low as three and a half percent down. Right. Um, but for us, that debt was going to be too big. So we just put a conventional loan, uh, 20% down. What, what's the catch there? I'm honestly a little ignorant on how the first time home buyer, cause I don't think I capitalized on it on my first home. I think I just didn't know any better. And we did a conventional loan too, just like good boys and girls. And that was it. So what's the, what's the deal there <laughs> for those that are interested? Sure. Yeah. So for first time home buyer, um, the pro is that you can put as little as three and a half percent down. So if you don't have a huge down payment, if you live mm-hmm. somewhere where you are eligible for that much debt, um, then you can do that. The con is that you do have to pay mortgage insurance. So anytime you yep. pay less than 20% of your down payment, you're paying mortgage insurance. Um, with the market the way it is, I mean, people are like doing first home, first time home buyer, putting three and a half percent down. And then the next year they're refinancing and instantly have 20% equity and they don't have to pay that mortgage insurance anymore. Um, but traditionally it was you're paying that mortgage insurance or PMI uh, is what a lot of banks will call it um, for the the length of time until you gain 20% equity. Gotcha. Okay. So you guys were saving for the home you wanted to move into. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up, uh, we were still, we still wanted uh, as far as it to be an investment versus just a personal home. And so we, we were looking ideally to get a duplex um, and that ended up being pretty tricky. Uh, seems, seems like your duplexes are surprisingly a little more common in the Midwest than they are necessarily here. And so we basically ended up looking at a lot of single family homes as well as homes with uh, mother-in-laws. And so the one we ended up buying had a front house and then a mother-in-law in the back, which is basically a studio and then a garage as well. Like a detached space, the mother-in-law yep. suite, correct? Yep. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't so actually come with someone's mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> not yet. Not Some yet. of them. <laughs> <laughs> Throw her in. <laughs> no, I mean, it was one of those things too, where like, oh, a long-term, it would like, if, if we are the only ones that live here and like, it would be pretty nice to have for that purpose. <laughs> yeah. So to make it an investment, you were looking for rentable space. Yeah. Yeah. Correct basically a house hack, but not have to share space. Right. Perfect. Well, we lived in a van, so we don't need a ton of space. So we actually decided that we would live in uh, the mother-in-law. So we live in the studio and then we rent out the front, um, which is typically people do it in in reverse, but we just didn't need a ton of space. So we've been doing that. And then rather than doing a long-term rental, in the front, we actually turned it into a short-term rental. So that was our first experience. All of our um, properties prior to this have been long-term rentals. So we get people in there, minimum of a year lease. They call us if something breaks, but otherwise we don't typically hear from them, hopefully. <laughs> and then with this mm-hmm. one, um, we decided to turn it into a short-term rental and and throw it on Airbnb. 
Yeah, this has been fascinating because you guys have really almost tried every real estate investing under the sun here in a way. You've done fix yeah. and flip. You've done short-term, long-term. You haven't, I mean, you've kind of done house hacking in a way with yeah. this. So yeah, you guys kind of tested out the water with Airbnb, but decided to move away from it. Why was that? So San Diego is very seasonal. So we just with the timing and how everything worked out, by the time we bought the house, closed on it, um, and got it furnished and ready for a short-term rental, it was summer. So prime tourism season here. So we got Airbnb up and running. Everything was running smoothly. And then September hit and boom, we had like one booking. (laughs) And so we, uh, you know, everyone goes back to school, no one's traveling. So we figured that we had to get like another option going on and it was already furnished. So we didn't want to put a long-term rental renter in there and have to move all of our stuff out. Um, so we ended up going with, uh, what they call medium term rentals. So people who it could be like, um, travel nurses, or it could be international students that are just coming for a semester or, um, like we've had people who, uh, their house, they were local, but their house was getting renovated. And so they needed Mm -hmm. a place, you know, so it's kind of those people who they're not vacationing on short-term rental, but they're not looking for a long-term solution either. So they just need a furnished, furnished kind of like one to three months. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty cool too, because with the, obviously as it's furnished, it's going to income is going to be a little greater than if it's um, empty, but also like there's, before we had really looked into it, we didn't realize how many options there were. Like we had um, insurance people calling us. We had uh, different um, firms that place nurses and stuff. And so there's just a lot of different options that we didn't even think about until we had to like find a solution. And it's something that I think has a lot of potential to be um, a strategy like our strategy is middle-term rental uh, and something we've actually have have done it again in one of our Midwest houses. And it just seems like the people that are doing it, they're usually, they're there for a short period of time. So they're not wanting to make big changes. They're really mm-hmm. looking for somewhere that's comfortable. They're looking for something that they don't have to have any like interactions. It's just like a place to lay their head. And so you, you almost end up having way less um, demands, even though it's furnished and there's a lot more stuff that potentially could break, you actually hear for them less. That's true. No, no. I mean, my wife and I just, you know, since we've left our kind of corporate world jobs, we've done now three or four of these months plus long stays. And it's great. It really is great. And you feel like it's your house. It doesn't feel like vacation. You live somewhere else for a while and you take care of it because you're going to be there for like four weeks. You don't want to trash it like on the second night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So. It's, it's a cool strategy. And I think, I mean, it, I think it will always have a mixed approach just because we kind of like trying new things, but it's something we'll foster and hopefully get more of with, with, uh, basically mirroring our long-term rental approach. Yeah. Let's pop back to that long-term rental unless TN, you have anything to add there? Nope. No, that's it. We're, I mean, we've got summer coming up, so we're going to have to be deciding soon <laughs> if we're going to keep short term or medium term right now but true um, true they're both good options so but meanwhile you guys have continued to own and continue to evaluate properties throughout the country right so you own these in the midwest and i think you've got at least one or two in new york correct kentucky maybe remind me of where you guys have got properties now 
Yeah, we're we're a little unfocused. So we've got <laughs> um, we've got two duplexes in Indiana. Um, we have four units. So four units in Indiana, four units in Kentucky, and then one house in New York. Okay, good. All right. Um, so yeah. yeah, why? Why? You're in California. You've got all these properties all <laughs> over the country. It sounds hard to manage. So yeah, tell me about this. Yeah. So kind of like our strategies, we have um, different management styles for each state as well, which I guess for us, like we've been trying a lot of things just to see what works and to just like perfect our systems. So for Indiana, I self-manage that. So I manage the properties, um, income, rental, tenant, communication, stuff like that. I do all that. And then we just have like one person um, boots on the ground as a, as a main point of contact that helps like if we need to go meet a contractor or um, I need her to walk around the property when someone moves out and check for damage and stuff like that. So right. I do it, but I have boots on the ground. And then also my family is all there. So um, mm. if you know we need help, if our property manager, so to speak, is unavailable, you know they can step in and then we, we pay them hourly for their work. Uh, so that's our Indiana strategy. And then with Kentucky, we actually have just recently partnered with someone. So she man- we manage um, a lot of the financials and sort of like all the admin. Brandon does all the analyzing and evaluating as to whether we should buy a property or not. And then she handles all the rehab and contractors and tenant communication. So that one's kind of like a shared responsibility. And then New York is a new one where um, – we're looking just for a full-time property manager. We don't know that area. We don't have anyone there. And so we're just kind of looking to, I don't want to say offload that, but utilize somebody whose expertise that is. Yeah. So what's that process? I mean, I know, I guess where you in the Midwest, you had family and you had family connections and you're from there, but in these new kind of markets for you guys, how are you evaluating how to have, I don't know, who to pick for like a handyman or a property manager, you know, whenever you need work, you don't, you don't want to fly back and forth out there and do all this yourself, of course. Right. Yeah. And so for New York, um, it just so happened. So I joined a real estate mastermind. It's just me and two other women and one of them invests in New York and one of them invests in Louisville, Kentucky. So that's where we kind of branched into those two markets from Indiana so we're working with one of them in Louisville. She's the one who helps find all the handyman. Um, hmm. if, if there's a middle of the night call, she's the one who's going to get it and she handles that. Uh, for New York, it was actually the other <laughs> the other girl who's in my mastermind. And she knew that area really well. So we were just using her resources, like her realtor, her lawyer, her everything there. Um, that has been a little trickier because we don't know anything else. And we, I would probably advise against that for anybody. Um, we Mm. should be like, you should be analyzing your market and you should know the market. Well, like for us, we don't know that city at all. And so we will probably sell that property eventually, Mm. um, sooner than the others, just so that we can focus on the markets that we know people in. But for now, um, that's where it is. We just kind of have to trust the people that are on the ground for that one. Yeah. And, and we, uh, we, we probably rushed that one a little much. Uh, we actually did what's called a 1031 exchange from a tax perspective. We were trying to defer, um, capital gain. And so hmm. we were getting down to the wire on having to meet the requirements for that. And so we probably could have spent maybe an extra week 
evaluating the area, but we were feeling the crunch time on having to meet the deadlines for the exchange. And Tian, this mastermind, what is this? Is this just some sort of collaboration? I, I'm not familiar with the term. Yeah, so it's actually just um, two other women that I had met um, on, on Bigger Pockets, actually. And so okay. I just, uh, one one of them was looking to start a mastermind with other female investors. And so I had replied to it. So had the other girl and she wanted to keep it really small. So we just capped it at the three of us. And we just meet weekly to talk about, you know, like what our real estate goals are, um, what our personal goals are, things we're working on. And then it's just really an accountability group. So like this week I'm, I'm committing to, you know, putting an offer on three houses or something like that. And then next week you have to check in and make sure you're doing that. Um, Matt, there are also like paid masterminds out there where people pay to be part of a group that there's someone who leads it. I mean, there's a lot of different, uh, different kind of masterminds, but that's, that's how mine works. It's more just like an accountability group. Interesting. I hadn't heard this. Yeah. I mean, bigger pocket is such a resource. I mean, we keep going back to them, but they, they really have done a ton for this form of investing, getting information out there on how to not screw it up basically. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're pretty much the. If you're if you're interested in real estate, they're a, a great resource for sure. Yeah. So when you guys let's talk about down payments again. You you guys mentioned doing conventional loan mm-hmm. on your personal property, but what was your approach for these investment properties? Were you doing that as well? Yeah, pretty much. So really? um, for okay. the fi- for the fix and flip, we actually bought that one cash. And then because we knew it was going to be such a quick turnaround time and it went on the market and had like, and this was in 2017. So the market is not, was not as crazy as it is now, but this particular house um, was a single family house, which are typically more competitive. And I think it had like nine offers in the first day or something like that. So our realtor told us like, if you want this house, you're going to have to offer cash, which is if you are in a put, like if you have the ability to do that, I highly recommend it because um, it's obviously going to help your offer, if, you, if in, right. especially in this competitive market. But that one we bought for cash only had to be out the cash for um, six weeks, or I guess it took just over two months once we closed and everything like that. So um, we were able to Wait. get that back. But how, how were you able to get it back? I'm lost. Oh, sorry, because it was a flip. So oh, as okay. soon as sure, we. Sure, sure. Yeah. So we bought it in cash and then we fixed it up in six weeks. It took about three weeks, I think, to um, sell it and close and then we got the money back. But for the others, the long-term rentals, those ones, we just did um, conventional loans. And then when you go to buy a property, that's 100% investment. So you're not the one living there. They typically expect 25% down. So the down payments are a little bit higher. The interest Mm -hmm. rates are a little bit higher. So it's not as great of a deal, which is why a lot of people typically go the first time home buyer, or even if you don't use that FHA loan, if you just, if you're the one living in it, you're still going to get better rates and have to put down less. So yeah, let's talk about debt load then. So to own all these properties, I mean, you guys are looking at a lot of debt. I don't know what the figure is. <laughs> you can share it if you want, but it's more than zero. <laughs> and <That's> so pretty <laughs> <laughs> sure correct on that. So, um, you know, for someone like my wife, like her chief goal in like this whole pursuit of, I don't know, financial independence was first and foremost to be debt free. And so for some people, that's very important. For you guys, it obviously is not. It's not part of the equation at all. You are using debt to leverage, you know, growth. 
Yeah, How do you get comfortable Brandon with that? Sp- yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think Brandon can speak more to that um, in a second. But for us, like we started that way. We, you know, we followed Dave Ramsey. We paid off our debt. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we were like, what do we do now? And so mm-hmm. we were like, we were calculating like, oh, we save um, two to $3,000 a month, which is, you know, which is good. And, uh, but we're like at two to $3,000 a month, like we're never going to be able to buy a house or like, we're never going to have financial freedom right, at right. that rate. So we, we were trying to find ways to compound that. Um, and so that's kind of how we got into real estate. Um, but Brandon can talk more on leverage and, and why we go that route. Yeah. So, I mean, because obviously the leverage, you can see a greater return on your investment. And like, for example, just to give you some like our asset returns right now, if you were just to look at the values of the homes and stuff, like we're at like a 17.2% versus if we lever it, like how much cash we've actually put into it, you're at 51.2%. So your ability to lever this is your return. Sorry. This is our return. Like, okay. It, so yeah, it's like an annual return on our property. Okay. If you're looking at like the value of properties, it would be like, because appreciation has been crazy right now. So this isn't like, Oh, this is what you should expect by any means. Just to, that was just thinking a way to like give the leverage example out there. Like, right. We get right. 17% on the full value of the asset versus 51% on how much money we actually put into the assets. Does that and what sense? kind of return would you look for? Yeah, it does. What okay. kind of return would you, and I, like you said, the appreciation right now is kind of unheard of. What would you look for in a quote unquote normal market? Yeah. So, so when we're, we're looking for um, our goal, our cash on cash return is a 12%. So that's kind of like I put in 20, thousand dollars to buy a hundred thousand dollar property i would hope to get 12 percent of that twenty thousand on the first year of rent so to speak hmm. okay and, so, and for those that are interested that is probably better on average than an index fund in the stock market which would be historically on average about eight to ten percent per year so yeah that is yeah. A, and it's not like yeah. obviously there's there's not a um uh, <clears throat> and that so that's just a traditional all right, so we bought it cash, conventional loan. That's kind of like, that's the kind of the numbers we're looking at. And then okay. the addition to get on top of that and kind of our goal right now with our partner in Kentucky is to go through the Burr route. And the Burr route is basically leveraging even at another level because you what we'll do is we'll buy it cash and then we'll fix it up, get it rented and everything, refinance 100% of our investment so that cost of the house plus cost of repairs. And then you're lo- basically looking at infinite returns, but the cash flow is really what, what we're looking at. Um, Brandon, because, can you, can you run through an example of like 80, you buy it for 80, put 20. Sure. Sure. So yeah. So like you, um, for example, you, you're, we're buying, uh, say just like a three bedroom, two bath. That's if it was all nice fixed up, it would be worth $150,000 but mm-hmm. it's in shambles. So you buy it for 80,000 and it costs about 20 to put, to fix it up or even say in this case, um, $40,000. So you're up to like $120,000 invested. Um, and then cash. you go and cash out 
$120,000 of that value of $150,000 at the end of the day, your investment will be zero, but you'll have, you'll have to have the upfront cash of $120,000. But then once you refinance it, you now have that $120,000 to go do it again on another property. So that probably wouldn't be your first go at it, but once you kind of get this snowball rolling. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. And And those are just easy numbers. Like in the Midwest, you can buy something for less than that. Like you, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could buy like a 40,000, 30 or $40,000 property or something like that. Really? Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, the trick there is it's a lot of processes. So, and that's kind of like what Tina's talking about. We have been getting different processes in different places, but we're really doing, trying to do a better job of focus, focusing our processes like where we have the process of purchase and then you have the process of rehab and then the process of refinancing it, getting all those kind of in a row and having everything so that as soon as you're done with one project, you have the next project lined up and you're going continuously. No, I mean the engineer, you know, brain that I have loves this. I wasn't an engineer, but I have that kind of brain. So I (laughs) I love this kind of concept and I've gotten, loosely into this over the years and I've never committed just because it seemed like too much work. So where do you guys find the time to do all this? Well, you have real jobs. Not This is not your only job. <laughs> uh, we just leverage people's time. You know, we, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to say we use people like sure, we no, pay no, for no. them, but um, no, we, we try to leverage other people. So they say, you know, you can build wealth by either using other people's time or other people's money. So we're trying to use experts like we've got um you know we've got someone who just does floors we have someone who just does hvac or or things like that and so basically if we have a like um we just closed on a property on friday and then we had the flooring guy there an hour after closing so he ripped out the floors and and redid it and so we we just kind of have those processes in place now, which it has taken us a few years to really get those down. But now we have the people to contact um, for whatever needs that we have. So the only thing that we're really putting our time and effort into is logistics, I guess. Mm. Or, you know, make calling banks if we're going to have to do a refinance. Like we'll be calling banks and doing the admin work. But we have monthly... Um, budget meetings and business meetings where we go over the finances. But otherwise, like our ultimate goal is just to be like the manager of the property managers. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's our, that's the dream. Yeah. You're polishing this template. It sounds like it's mm-hmm. quite polished at this point. It's getting there. There's always more polishing <laughs> to do. Trying. Yeah. Sure. Oh, there's always, that's <laughs> Depends life, right? on the week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's always more yeah. polishing. And we, I feel like, uh, it's, we both are very hands-on people. So uh-huh. a big, I would say even in the last year, our uh, one of our big focuses has been to step away. Like, all right, I can't do this. Like, let's get somebody else that's going to do it quicker, better. Um, so finding those people that will be more efficient and maybe it costs a little more than us doing it on our own. At the end of the day, it's going to be a better product for us and our tenants. Yeah, absolutely. And your brain. Yeah. It's so easy yeah. to just get bogged down. I mean, I'm with you. I'm the same personality. Totally. And we like to play a lot and we like to travel. We like to climb <laughs> and surf and, and do all those things. So like there was a, 
you know, our first year that we had the duplexes in Indiana, I like I flew back twice to fix him up. And then that was when Brandon was on probation for, for work. So he would stay here and work and I'd go back and fix up the properties. And we just didn't really get to like do all the things that we love. So we're trying to create systems and to, to, to build a life around the things that we like to do. Well, I'm so glad you circled it back to that because it's so easy to get lost. You know, I think you guys are just like me. We can play on spreadsheets forever and geek out on numbers and kind of lose the forest for the trees. But we're mm-hmm. all doing this because we wanted to buy back our time and we wanted to buy back, you know, I don't know, time with friends or time with family and pursuing passions. And so you guys do have this ambition of of basically cash flowing your life through this approach. So at one point, you will be making enough money from these rents to where work becomes optional. It doesn't mean you're going to walk away, but it is optional, right? That is a goal. It is correct. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what do you need for that to happen? Like, where are you in that evolution? Yeah. So we, uh, like right now we're kind of in our growth phase of the business and the goal isn't to grow forever. Like we don't, we don't want to be moguls by any means. It's like mm-hmm. our goal is to like, be able to spend time with fam- family and friends and really enjoy life while mm-hmm. being able to give back, whether it's through our own stuff here or just providing a clean, comfortable home for somebody. So right now we're growing the business. We're hoping to do, keep doing these, these burrs, um, purchase the, the minimum number of homes to meet our cash flow goal which uh, like we still have some work to do. We still will have to buy quite a few properties. But once we hit that minimum number of homes, we'll actually refocus from growth to actually kind of maintenance on the the um, top line and then pay down of debt. So we don't really necessarily want to carry large debt forever. Um, right. And we'll, we'll get to a point where once we maybe get to that minimum number of homes, we might actually sell homes to pay off other homes so that we can cash flow more on each property versus like right now our cash flow goals are pretty minimum. Like that's not gonna be something that like, oh, we could retire next year based on the cash flow we're getting from these homes. But with the long term appreciation and with the ability to buy more homes with the same recycled cash, we could theoretically sell homes, pay off homes, and then also are still we still are pretty um, frugal we try to live on one income even though we have additional income in, coming in it's just to put that mm-hmm. extra stuff towards that to the point that we can live on the cash flow based on the least amount of properties like we're not we're, we're not trying to grow forever so how many properties do you think you would need to get to your let's just say your current spending our current spending we probably <laughs> would only need um i didn't do it on current spending <laughs> but uh probably well, i mean future if you're smart yeah, you do yeah, it yeah. on future spending anyway so <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean <laughs> i'm assuming our, future spending would be higher i guess for this yeah, assumption yeah. i'm operating on yeah okay, good exactly <laughs> yeah so i mean kind of the the and and we're basically we also like built in like all right so what if we want to like help like my parents or something like that so it's mm, a little higher okay. than what our spending would be but Sure. Our our goal is to kind of keep a make a max of forty houses. Realistically, you want 40. to stay under thirty. Wow. 
And That's sorry, not houses, um, doors. Yeah. So, okay, units. doors. Okay, mm-hmm. gotcha. Yeah. And Still. so we currently have ten. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So you would need to kind of quadruple to get to a, a healthy, comfortable spending. Yeah, and that, and then that spending. would, and like I said, and say we get to that forty, then we might sell ten of them just to get to, to that ideal level of. Um, we don't want to have so many houses that. It's actually deterring from our freedom. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, is that like a forever plan? Can you be 95 and manage all this? Like, how does this work for like growing old? You know, I'm I'm always like thinking super long term. That's just where my brain is. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually, um, we, we've gained a lot of inspiration from some friends that are actually climbers, uh, who retired pretty young. Uh, they, they ended up getting the real estate kind of later in their career, but they, uh, were, were definitely modeling our future retirement off of them and they spend about one day a month on the business. Oh, wow. So, and I think they have like 22 rentals or something like that. Yeah. They were up to at one point, like 60. So they, they've done a lot, but they've pared down to like 22. Yeah. So the methods are more or less what you were saying, Brandon, of just kind of recycling cash and, you know, starting to pare down a bit. Yeah. So the way that they did it, actually, they went your path um, with investing, index funds, uh, just traditional investing Mm -hmm. in order to retire by 40. And then right when they were retiring is when the housing market crashed. And so that's when they said, oh, like we have all this cash because or we have access to all this cash because we were planning on retiring. So why don't we just buy properties with it, work for five more years? And so they were they. retired at 45 instead of 40 with a, a huge portfolio of rentals, <laughs> but they have professional property managers for every house that they have. So they really don't do any management, which is eventually our goal as well. Mm. Yeah. They sound like good podcast guests. I'll have to hit you up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're great. They mountain bike and climb and they're rad people. Perfect. Yeah. No, an inspiration yeah. for us. <laughs> Yeah, that's helpful because that's where I kind of lose this. I mean, I can always see it short term. Like, I, I do appreciate what you're saying. And this is, I think this definitely can be a faster approach to building wealth than, you know, slowly sucking index funds, you know, and waiting on the compounding to happen. But that said, I'm always like, yeah, it just sounds like such a thing to manage, you know, I'm like it sounds overbearing and it sounds like, oh, a lot of debt. Now you got to be calling carpenters and all this stuff. But it does sound like once you get this template going and just like most good things, it takes time. You can get mm-hmm. to where you can start to separate yourself from it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not that we love real estate. Like <laughs> I would say most days we don't love real estate. <laughs> um, but it's just the best path that we've been able to find to mm-hmm. to get our goals where we want to be. And I would say it's also like consistency is one of those things where it's it the <laughs> I feel like if you're consistent with something you're going to have way more success than anything else. And so. Isn't that true? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, you know, because we, we've talked about bigger pockets and I, I met with Scott Trench, who's there, one of their uh, co- co-founders, CEO, I can't remember. And mm-hmm. I, I, I told him straight up, I was considering going this path, but we were nearing a point where we could be retired on index funds, right? On just stock market investing. And he's like, I don't know that I would do what I did if I were in your position now. And so I didn't. Because he's like, you've been consistent in that way. So yeah. just 
Right. Just do that. Why start this whole other thing, this whole new can of worms? He's like, if you've kind of won the game with that approach, like I wouldn't necessarily shift focus. Yeah. And so I did. percent agree. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, that's re- reassuring. Cause yeah, we were thinking about maybe when we cashed out our Denver house and bought somewhere cheaper, like we did, we'd maybe use the excess to kind of diversify into real estate. But I'm like, I don't know if it's worth doing with just one property. Like, I feel like it's got to, you got to, you know, open the whole can. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, I guess a bad diversification. Like if you bought one and like maybe did something like, like easier. (laughs) uh, That's not easier. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe middle third. Yeah. My, my, my first thought went to Airbnb though, because the cash, the, the return on that, if you only have one house, you know, like we, we house hack Airbnb here, which is the, the cash flow here is the equivalent of five Midwest houses. Obviously, like buy-in price is a lot more. Wow. And, yeah. You know, but our like pure profit is the equivalent of five houses there because it's long-term versus short-term. Right. Yeah, that's kind of our model now. And we haven't really been doing it because we haven't felt like we needed the money. But I mean, when we travel, we could theoretically rent out our house. We haven't done it. We could make mm-hmm. cash that way. We could rent out a room. We have a guest room that just sits there collecting dust that we could rent out. We just haven't felt like we needed to. We didn't want the burden. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So, but that, that, because we didn't, we weren't starting from zero. We didn't feel like we need to go this full approach, but um, maybe this is a good opportunity. The one thing I haven't asked you guys about that I wanted to dive into a little bit. I think another thorny thing that people are afraid of with real estate investing is just dealing with tenants. So, First off, do you guys have any just absolute horror stories or has it been pretty good? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's some laughter. I knew it. Okay. Um, yeah, I think every investor has fun stories. Um, we, I guess our most interesting story was that we had a tenant who COVID obviously hurt a lot of people. And so mm-hmm. she was laid off um, and was getting rental assistance. So rent. She wasn't paying for rent. Everything was going well. We didn't hear from her. And then, um, she, when it, when her rental assistant stopped, she was supposed to be paying rent. So she started communicating with us and saying, you know, I'm still trying, I'm trying to borrow money from people or, or cause I still don't, I'm still not working. So we're going back and forth with her. And then all of a sudden she goes dark. So, and obviously we live, you know, a- across the country. So Mm-hmm. Um, we try to contact her, try to contact her. Then we get a text from a random number that says, Hey, I'm friends with so-and-so and she's been arrested. And so, um, she can't pay her rent. <laughs> so like, all right, interesting. So, uh, we kind of, um, kind this of maneuver like, through that. This was the day after she said, Oh, I just, I just got money. Like I'm going to pay you tomorrow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, Classic. perfect. Yeah. And then nothing. <laughs> like, oh, what yeah. So she got the money, um, decided to use it, unfortunately, on drugs. And so was arrested for that. And um, we didn't we didn't get the rent while she was in jail. Someone broke into her house, looking for which was drugs. someone that she knew. And there was just, yeah, it was just a hot mess. And so then her friend was like, can we move all her stuff out? Cause we don't know when she's going to get out of jail and then she won't have to pay her rent. You know, at that point we were like, we're out a month's rent, but that's fine. Just like get, 
get our stuff out. That way we can just move on with, <laughs> with a new person. Um, and then it took three months to get out. So then we were out three months rent plus damages mm. and all that stuff. So that I guess is what people, you know, first think about when they right. think about real estate investing. Right. Um, so that's probably our most interesting story, but the way, and you just have to calculate that stuff in, I guess, like you assume that you're going to have some issues. So the moral of the story is one, screen your tenants. So the only time we've ever had problems with tenants is when we didn't do proper screening. Now we have screening systems in place. Um, we ended up losing about $3,000 on that unit because we the three months of rent plus um, having to fix up all the damages. She left a bunch of stuff. So we had to do dump runs to get it all out. And that was a, a turnover that we managed completely remotely. So that was our first time like hiring people to do everything, which was hmm. uh, pretty awesome because we'd never done that before. Like, wow, this is, this is really nice. Um, but now that we know, like we've learned from every tenant and now that we know what to look for, um, we have the, the, the systems in place. So we do background check, credit check, um, I'm trying to think right now. Uh, we check landlord and professional references. And then obviously there's there are fair housing laws. So you do have to follow those and make sure that sure. you're abiding by any laws. But um, ever since we started implementing tenant screening, knock on wood, we've had no issues. Do you actually talk to any of these people ahead of time or is it just kind of paperwork? Um, it's a lot of paperwork mostly. Yeah. yeah we okay. talk more with their references than we do with them. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and like our, our property managers will meet them when they walk through the unit to view it. But we personally rarely talk to tenants before they're, they're put in. So what about raising rents? I mean, eventually, you know, you can't keep the same rent forever. And, you know, there are some incentives of keeping rent low if you've got a great tenant. I understand that. So what is your process for, I don't know, dealing with the inflation of rent? Yeah, so our lease uh, states that there will be a minimum of 3% annually to keep up with inflation. Obviously, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Like mm -hmm. during COVID, we, you know, for those two years, we didn't raise rents at all. You know, people were struggling, mm -hmm. people were trying, right. losing their jobs and things like that. So that's a scenario where we didn't, you know, we didn't follow that. Um, if there is, if someone moves out, that's obviously a chance to raise rents higher if they aren't at market rent. But when people are renewing, like we, you know, we try to keep it between three to five percent if that's what's if that's what matches the market. Um, mm -hmm. If they're already at market rent, like we've had people renew that we just didn't raise it because they were already at market rent, so there was there was no need. So it's really just, um, you know, if our taxes are going taxes go up every year, and so does HOA and landscaping and all that stuff that we pay for. So if we've got those increased expenses that does typically flow over to rent, but we're not trying to gouge people and say, you know, we can raise it 10% by law. So we're going to every year. Right. Right. Anything else about tenants I'm not thinking of that I should know? Just screen them. That's like my biggest piece of advice for real estate investing is, is screen your tenants. Yeah. Well, let's talk about for someone who's just brand new to this and the market has obviously changed dramatically since you guys first brought your first properties. So in this, you know, in this low inventory environment, super high demand, what do you say to those that are just trying to get started? 
it's one of those things where it's obviously going to be a case by case scenario. Like, is it, are they looking for something that's a house hack or are they really trying to get into real estate investing? Um, but as far as purchasing a home, it's, it's one of those things where you, if it's a good deal today and you're in it for the long haul, it's going to be a good deal in 10, 15 years. So mm-hmm. being, being afraid and that was something we dealt with like, ah, oh, it's like, it's so high compared to last year. But if the numbers make out, make sense today and you're not trying to flip it and sell it in a year, the, the risk is pretty low. Um, and then as far as exit strategies, like we talked about the high debt load before, and we mm-hmm. kind of meant to even mention it, like when we buy a house, the goal is to rent it, but we always have the secondary exit strategy of selling it. And say you do sell it at a loss, like say you, we put, um, you lose $5,000 on it. At the end of the day, if you're losing 5,000 and you're doing more than one deal, it's not going to kill you. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> for us, that property that she was talking about where we ended up buying and we didn't know the area super well, and it was maybe a little rougher neighborhood than our realtor kind of led us to believe, or we just didn't do enough research ourselves at the end of the day. But the, um, we sold that property because after having that tenant experience, we went to our secondary strategy of selling it. And by selling it, we ended up profiting on that property, even though we did lose three months of rent. Mm. Uh, so having multiple, um, extra strategies, like for our house here, we, we can do short term, we can do middle term, we can do long term or sell. So there's, there's not always just one option and having that in the back of your head, like, Oh yeah, it's, it's pretty stressful to buy this house, but just knowing that you have more than one option helps. Uh, I think that's from a mental perspective, something we struggle with that over time we got way better. Like, all right, today's a, it's a good deal today. Let's buy it. Um, and obviously maybe there are fewer good deals today, but they're still out there. It just takes a little bit more work to find them being patient and not forcing it. We've definitely in times like, mm-hmm. Oh, we got to buy something. And if you force it, there's a chance that it's not as good a deal, but you always have those secondary options of different rental strategies or just selling the property. Yeah. I mean, I still think that 2008 financial crisis looms large. I mean, that was a very, from a housing perspective, a very strange recession. And I think now we associate recessions and stock market collapses with housing market collapses, but that one was kind of an anomaly, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for that size, it definitely was pretty anomaly. But um, I think I was reading a study. I wish I could reference it right now, but it was like for our age group, for my wife and I, like we were kind of in the middle of that. Like we were going into our careers and everything when that Mm -hmm. happened. And so people that experience that are a lot more hesitant than say someone that graduated in 2014. Like that doesn't even, absolutely that, that doesn't even influence in their decision on buying a house really anymore, man, I'll try to find the article for you and you can reference it, but it was really interesting. Just the psychological effect that had on people in that age group that were coming into the workforce or buying homes during that time. 
Oh, it's changed the money mindset of our generation substantially. I mean, I was in there too. I, you know, I came out of, I was in grad school when the whole world turned upside down and it totally changed the outlook of what I wanted to do for my career. And yeah. I still, to this day, I'm battling with getting people okay with putting their money into something, anything at all, whether it's houses or stocks or anything that appreciates because yeah. of that event. Yeah. It really did. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't matter what you were in. It, it went down for a while. And if you, you know, you didn't stay the path, it hurt. Yep. So, And it's kind of unrelated, but our, our age group too, um, also statistically accepts lower salaries too. Cause we, mm-hmm. you know, we were just desperate when we came out of college, like there was right. no jobs right. and we were just like, we'll take anything. And so I think they've, they've been following our age group and it shows like we're more hesitant to spend money. Um, mm-hmm. and we're not as demanding when it comes to salaries, you know? Well, I'm glad to have you guys on here. I'm always looking for more folks who <laughs> will, you know, talk through a different, a different mindset on this. So I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. And one thing I do want to say too is we, even though we live in this high, um, you know, high cost of living area, one of our biggest regrets is not buying a personal home earlier because Mm. the amount of, for the amount of cash that we put into six units in Indiana, we could have taken that cash, bought a house here and it would have appreciated, you know, threefold compared to the cash on cash return that we've gotten on those long-term rentals. Absolutely. So, you know, our money is growing either way, but I say for someone who's debating, like, should I get in? Should I not? If you can afford it. And if you run the numbers on the property and you have multiple exit strategies, whether it's selling it or house hacking or, you know, renting it out when you go on vacation or whatever, um, I would, you know, I hate to say I would probably pull the trigger. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't be buying like a house just for yourself, non-investment property that's one point five million dollars or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. something crazy. Amen. Which Amen. is, you know, you know, that's like a million dollars is like a starter home now in San Diego, unfortunately. Oh, but seriously, I would. Most, uh, most cities now, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, we bought our first property. You know, it was in 2013, and we thought we were way overpaying. We thought the market was too hot. The same, the same thing people have been saying pretty much since the recession of 2008. The market's too hot. It's going to crash again. Same mm-hmm. fears and the fire. The you know the mantra in the in the fire world, the financial independence world is oh never buy, just rent, and then put all your money into index funds. And uh, man, I think one of the best things we ever did was buy a house because. Hey, it just, it's just a peace of mind thing. Like it, it's an intangible that we really like living in our own space that we own that we can do with what we please. And it really has been a great financial move. Now, maybe that's anonymous because there's been a whole lot of housing growth, um, just appreciation. And we were able to cash out an expensive city and move somewhere else and generated a bit net, big net kind of equity cash out with that. Um, but man, we've been huge fans of being homeowners and we haven't done it right. We haven't done it as investors like you guys have. But yeah. I have zero regrets of not spending the last 10 years renting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean. And, you know, if you can find a house hack, then absolutely you have to live, you have to live somewhere. I mean, exactly. you can live in a van and that's great. <laughs> but if you, if you plan to live in a brick and mortar home, then you have to pay something for it. And like for us and for your last guest, Eric, like he's making money living and, and so are we. And right. so we're, you know, hopefully our house is going up and we're, living for free. And, um, there's just other ways like we could save all our money and put them in index funds and still, still go that path. But I think having your own personal home is a huge asset. No, I love that. I love it. I really do. I just think it's that, that 
I mean, if, if I can drive home anything, and I keep saying this over and over because I'm not a real estate expert, but if you can have people paying some or most or all of your living expenses, that is our number one expense by far. Almost anyone, their living expenses is number one, head and shoulders above anything else. And to eradicate that from your spending is so powerful. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And there's so many ways you can go. I mean, like yep. you said, you can you can rent your uh, rent your house to you, you can rent rooms out. You can rent your driveway on Vanley for to, yeah, van, for right. van lifers who just want right. to you know a safe place to park at night. Like you can rent it out just while you're on vacation. There's so many options to house hack that it's it's such a good method if you're just just starting in real estate. All right. What before we leave real estate finally and for good? What if I just not asked you? I don't know enough about to ask. I'd say without getting too deep in the weeds, there's also a lot of like tax advantages for mm. real estate as well. Good point. Um, good point. You know, I won't I won't get like too high into them, but you know, you can de- depreciate your properties. Um, typically, you have a loss for the first five years just because you have the purchase of it. You are putting. Typically, especially as an investor, you're typically putting money in up front to fix it up. Um, you've got miles that you drive around. So there's other ways like you make money. You make money in real estate like so many different ways um, by appreciation, by getting your mortgage paid down. But then also there's tax advantages as well. So if that's something you're interested in, like it, definitely just do your research. And No, it's a great addition. I'm glad talk you're to, Talk to a professional. <laughs> Yeah, that goes for everything here, guys. <laughs> none, none of us are professionals, as usual. <laughs> Talk to someone that is. This is for yeah. educational purposes only. Entertainment purposes only. Entertainment. <laughs> entertainment only. <laughs> Speaking of entertainment, I wanted to get back to climbing because we didn't even talk about climbing. But what do you guys into? What do you guys like as climbers? You sport climbers, right? Yeah, yeah, we sport climb. Um, we really like to like like I said before, we got super spoiled when we started in Thailand. So we've kind of been we've we've kind of stuck with that theme of kind of destination type climbing as well mm-hmm. as local driving. Um, but yeah, like going over to Spain, climbing Spain, uh, EPC in Mexico, going up to Canada. Uh, and so I mean we we have a long list of places we still want to go and then but yeah, That's we fantastic. focus on sport climbing and if we can do a big trip in combination with it, that's like, that's, that's where we, we really enjoy it. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. It, climbing is something that we were able to do together because with Brandon being a runner, you know, if he runs with me, it's like speed walking for him basically. And then <laughs> if, you know, I was a diver, so if we do yoga like, or, or something acrobatic like that, then I'm going to be leaps and bounds ahead. So climbing is the thing that we like started together. Um, and then he's like stronger and burlier and is better at like bouldering and like overhanging routes. And then I have, I'm just a tiny person. So (laughs) I've got like the crimps down and stuff like that. So typically footwork, um, yeah, we're good. We're good climbing partners because if one of us can't get up it, hopefully the other one can. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I told you offline, come on over here. You guys will have a blast. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, the last question I've been finishing up with to make it more official is a book. A book you guys have read in the past, recently, anything you guys have been excited about. It doesn't have to be about real estate. It can be about anything, but maybe Tan, why don't you start? Yeah, so um, we're pretty big book nerds. I guess we listen to a lot yeah. of audiobooks. Um, but I, so I'm going to give you a few. But um, Extreme okay. Ownership, <laughs> 
is like one of the best ones just from like a personal development standpoint, like taking, you know, taking ownership of your life and your investments and, and things like that. So you can learn faster. Um, Atomic Habits is oh, yeah. great. And then um, The Power of Habits. So both of those on habits. And then also the for people who are like just looking to buy their first home, um, you mentioned Scott Trench. So he just came out with a book called First Time Homebuyer. Hmm. And Perfect. that I would definitely recommend that if someone's like just getting into it. And it basically is a lot about like not – it's like buying a house um, as an investment, you know, so like not buying the biggest house you can but like finding a good deal and then house hacking and stuff like that. So great, that's a good great. That. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess I have nothing left because she just listed all the books off. <laughs> <laughs> those are my books. No, <laughs> no, that's a that's a great list. I mean, I would say just from a uh, a book recently, um, read was Effortless uh, by Greg McCone. Mm. It it's a it's more of a mindset type thing, and and just making it so that the you have that typical mantra of if something's hard. And it take you forever. It's like worthwhile, and it kind of just kind of flips that on its head. And it's like, well, why don't we focus on making stuff easier and more efficient? And so it's just it's just a good book, especially for me because I like to make things hard. <laughs> I think that one's been on my list. Great, no, I appreciate it. Sweet. Well, I'll get those in the show notes for everybody. Is there anything else? No, I really no, appreciate I you having it. us on here, and hopefully, oh, we get man. to see you and get a climb. My in absolute soon. pleasure. Well, thank you guys so much. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging in all the way to the end on this interview with Tien and Brandon Rooney of 512 Real Estate. To get in touch with these guys, head on over to the show notes in your podcast thing on your phone or whatever. And you can get in touch with these guys and also explore all the resources we mentioned. There's a whole lot. Everything from bigger pockets to the books. It's all there, guys. So look no further than your show notes or at clippingchains.com. And of course, as usual, I'd really appreciate if you could share this with a friend or family member or anyone who may benefit from this material. And if you could leave a rating or a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts, man, that would get me real thrilled. All right. I appreciate it, guys. Have a great week and I will see you soon.